2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. We are reading from the Mueller Report, Part 1. This is page 32. And they're talking about the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, which is the Russian troll farm in St. Petersburg. In February 2017, the persona Black Fist, purporting to want to teach African Americans to protect themselves when contacted by law enforcement, hired a self-defense instructor in New York to offer classes sponsored by Black Fist blackfist was actually from the ira the ira also recruited moderators of conservative social media groups to promote ira generated content as well as recruited individuals to perform political acts such as walking around new york city dressed up as santa claus with a trump mask and there's a whole bunch of redacted stuff Uh, redacted as the ira's online audience became larger the ira tracked u.s persons with whom they communicated and had successfully tasked with tasks ranging from organizing rallies to taking pictures with certain political messages. Page 33. The top half of the page is redacted. Number seven. Interactions and contacts with the Trump campaign. The investigation identified two different forms of connections between the IRA and members of the Trump campaign. The investigation identified no similar connections between the IRA and the Clinton campaign. First, on multiple occasions, members and surrogates of the Trump campaign promoted, typically by linking, retweeting, or similar methods of posting, uh, reposting, pro Trump or anti Clinton content published by the IRA through IRA controlled social media accounts. Additionally, in a few instances, IRA employees represented themselves as U.S. persons to communicate with members of the Trump campaign in an effort to seek assistance and coordination on IRA-organized political rallies inside the United States. Uh, Subtopic A, Trump campaign promotion of IRA political materials. Among the U.S., quote, leaders of public opinion, end quote, targeted by the IRA were various members and surrogates of the Trump campaign. In total, Trump campaign affiliates promoted dozens of tweets, posts, and other political content created by the IRA. Posts in the IRA-controlled Twitter account, at 10 underscore GOP, were cited or retweeted by multiple Trump campaign officials and surrogates, including Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Kellyanne Conway, Brad Parscale, and Michael Flynn. These posts included allegations of voter fraud, as well as allegations that Secretary Clinton had mishandled classified information. On November 7th, 2016, a post from the IRA-controlled Twitter account Pamela underscore Moore 13 was retweeted by Donald Trump Jr. On September 19th, 2017, president trump's personal account at real donald trump responded to a tweet from the ira controlled account at 10 underscore gop the backup account of at 10 underscore gop this is not one zero which had already been deactivated by twitter the tweet read we love you mr president ira employees monitored the reaction of the trump campaign and later trump administration officials to their tweets for example, on August 23, 2016, the IRA-controlled persona Matt Skyber Facebook account sent a message to a US Party activist writing that, quote, Mr. Trump posted about our event in Miami, this is great, end quote. The IRA employee included a screenshot of candidate Trump's Facebook account, which included a post about the August 20, 2016 political rallies organized by the IRA out of St. Petersburg. Page 35, the top A little bit of the page is redacted. It follows B, contact with Trump campaign officials in connection to rallies. Starting in June 2016, the IRA contacted different U.S. persons affiliated with the Trump campaign in an effort to coordinate pro-Trump organized rallies inside the United States. In all cases, the IRA contacted the campaign while claiming to be U.S. political activists working on behalf of a conservative grassroots organization. The IRA's contacts included requests for signs and other materials to use at rallies, as well as requests to promote the rallies and help coordinate logistics. While certain campaign volunteers agreed to provide the requested material, for example, agreeing to set aside a certain number of signs, the investigation has not identified evidence that any Trump campaign official understood that the requests were coming from foreign nationals. In sum, the investigation established that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election through the Active Measures social media campaign carried out by the IRA, an organization funded by Prigozhin and companies that he controlled. As explained further in Volume 1, Section 5, The office concluded, and a grand jury has alleged, that Purgosian, his companies, and IRA employees violated U.S. law through these operations, principally by undermining through deceptive acts the work of federal agencies charged with regulating foreign influence in U.S. elections. Page 36, item number three, Russian hacking and dumping operations. Beginning in March 2016, units of the Russian Federation's main intelligence directorate of the general staff, the GRU, hacked the computers and email accounts of organizations, employees, and volunteers supporting the Clinton campaign, including the email account of campaign chairman John Podesta. Starting in April 2016, the GRU hacked into the computer networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, and the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. The GRU targeted hundreds of email accounts used by Clinton campaign employees, advisors, and volunteers. It's the Mueller report. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Mark Weisbrot is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. CEPR.net is the website. He is the president of Just Foreign Policies. The author of several books, including Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy. His Twitter handle is Mark Weisbrot w-e-i-s-b-r-o-t Mark, welcome back to the program
0: Thanks, Tom, good to be with you One of those
2: brilliant progressive economists out there but you really understand both the political and the economic dynamics of what's going on in Central and South America I'm curious, your thoughts on the latest news out of Venezuela
0: Well, the Trump administration is obviously trying to overthrow the government that's their stated goal but they haven't succeeded so far the last coup attempt uh, about a week ago uh, didn't work and so they're relying primarily on the sanctions the idea is to squeeze the economy and shrink it and but more than that to actually harm the civilian population until there's some kind of rebellion and a military rebellion or perhaps some kind of other rebellion that they're hoping for and the sanctions have been very deadly we did a report on it just a couple of weeks ago, estimated that tens of thousands, probably more than 40,000 people have died as a result of the sanctions since uh, August of 2017, when the Trump administration imposed a broad financial embargo on the country.
2: We did this in 1959 or 1960 to Cuba, and that was... What sixty years ago? If I'm doing my math right, it was a long time ago. Anyway, and Cuba's still, you know, moving along. Do you think that Venezuela has the ability to do that, or are, you know, are they going to break under these sanctions? And if so, what might be the result? It's a good
0: question. Well, you know, Cuba had help from the Soviet bloc after the sanctions. I think that made a huge difference. Right. Well, um, Venezuela is getting help
2: from Russia. I, I, I just don't think it's anywhere near as consequential as no, uh, how the Soviets sure were helping little. the Cubans.
0: It's very little. And the sanctions are much more deadly than people realize. I mentioned the death toll. For example, the IMF is projecting this year, they changed their projections from 5% growth to 25 for 2019. So that's a quarter of their economy that's going to be wiped out. And they changed it because of the January sanctions, which are much more severe than the sanctions that you had from August of 2017 that have already killed so many people. So, for example, Venezuela already lost more than a third of its oil production just in February and March. And then they're projected to lose most of their oil, probably two-thirds of their oil production. This year, what is left in their oil production, they already lost a huge amount. And the oil is what pays for all the, almost all of the imports of food, medicine, spare parts, medical equipment, things that you need for the health care and sanitation and water systems. So this is what they're actually cutting off when they cut all this off. This is just absolutely devastating. It's hard to imagine that it's the world is even going to allow it to happen during
2: this year. Yeah, although it seems to be happening right in front of us. Beto O'Rourke on Rachel Maddow's show said that he thought that Juan Guaido, the Speaker of the Parliament there, who never ran for president, is the actual credible president. There's. Something short of 50 other countries, including many of our allies who agree with him on that. What's the story here? What's the dynamic? How did this come about? And what's the probable fate and future
0: of it all? Well, first of all, I'm almost sure that Beto O'Rourke doesn't even know that when you recognize a parallel government, you're automatically imposing a trade embargo and some more severe financial sanctions because it means that the revenue that the government does have If the government sells any oil, it doesn't go to the government. It goes to the parallel government, to Juan Guaido. Of course, it can't even receive it. And so basically you're cutting off most of the export market for Venezuela. And you're also making it very hard for them, much harder for them, to get essential imports like medicine, even with the cash that they have on hand because... So
2: do you mean if the United States was to recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate president, and I think we have, uh, then that means that anything we buy from Venezuela, we don't pay to the Venezuelan government, we pay it to Juan Guaido and his buddies?
0: That's right. And that's why the biggest chunk of Venezuela's exports the US are no longer being exported. So that the, the money wouldn't be going back markets. to Guaido. Well of course. Why I mean why right. would they sell oil to give him money? Right. And it's really quite outrageous. The whole thing is kinda of I mean there are disputed elections all over the world and nobody intervenes and says, Well this is the president we want you know, Pence called Guaido the night before. He announced that he was president and gave him the okay. And it just isn't done. In fact, I don't think the United States has really done this since World War II when the Nazis occupied France and they recognized the government in, in exile. So this is really extreme and it violates all diplomatic conventions.
2: Mm. But... There is uh, something uh, short of 50 other countries have also recognized Guaido as oh, the, yeah, as yeah, the as yeah, legitimate president. Same,
0: yeah, I wrote an article about that, actually. And You see, this is very similar to George W. Bush's Coalition of the Willing in the Iraq War. He also had 48 countries. So all of these countries are political allies of the United States. So most of the world does not recognize the parallel government Mm. of Juan Guaido. You know, three-quarters of the countries in the world don't recognize it. These really are, you know, they're mostly right-wing governments. In Latin America, for example, they're all almost all right-wing governments, uh-huh. uh, and ironically, some of them came to power through other regime change operations of the United States. For example, the government of Honduras, you know, Mexico, and Uruguay, for example, have not recognized. But Argentina has a right-wing government that the U.S. also helped to get to power. Brazil has a, a fascist government which the U.S. helped get to power. Right, here about so Bolsonaro. These, so these are the governments that have joined this coalition of the willing. The European thing is another story. Obviously, those aren't all right-wing governments, but they also came under pressure. For example, the government of Spain had opposed the sanctions publicly, and then they pressured them because they had an election on April 28th, so there was a lot of you know media hype about yeah. Venezuela there. In Europe, kind of... Follows the U.S. and Spain's also lead on Latin America, but there are divisions in Europe as well. Italy hasn't recognized the guadal government, for example. Right, and I think
2: didn't Germany just back away from that recognition?
0: Oh, I haven't seen it. It might wow. have happened. I think you will see more splits among Europe. Because, yeah. you know. Trump himself is right. He said he thought this coup was going to happen on January 23rd. That's, you know, well, I'm thinking that when it didn't happen, that
2: he's directing his energies now. His uh, I want to have a war in order to get reelected energies to Iran, which also freaks me out. But we're talking with Mark Weisbrot of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net. Mark, the thing that really profoundly confounds me is how we can have so much emphasis on the Mueller report and all this concern, I think legitimate concern, about the possibility that another country, specifically in this case Russia, actually interfered in our election in a way that may well have put Donald Trump in the White House, at the same time that we are openly interfering in the electoral politics of Iran— and openly interfering in the electoral politics of venezuela and those aren't the only countries that we've been doing this in for some time is this just plain old hypocrisy or is there some law we're breaking i i I don't get it
0: oh yes well both i mean it's, it's 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 extreme hypocrisy obviously And it is many countries. I mean, I've written about them, but, you know, just in the 21st century, the U.S. intervened in Brazil, in Argentina, Paraguay, in Ecuador, in Bolivia, every place where you had a left government almost, the U.S. did something to try and undermine it or destabilize, or in the extreme cases like Honduras actually ported actively a military coup. Hillary Clinton wrote in her memoirs that, she worked to prevent the democratically elected president from returning to the country after the coup. Hmm. So, yeah, this is standard operating procedure in Latin America. And in Venezuela, you can see it does this extra damage. Because as you said, you know, look at the U.S. I think the whatever the Russians in that election 2016 polarized the country, well, imagine, look at what the U.S. is doing in Venezuela and what it does there.
2: Yeah. It's brutal. Mark Weisbrot, CEPR.net is the website, the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Mark, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Sure. Thank you, Tom. Always appreciate getting your perspective. It's so well-informed. Hey, Louise and I have been using CBD for a couple of years now for basically pain relief and sleep, but we had been using CBD that also had some pot in it, I suppose, because of, you know, it's legal here in Oregon. Um, but now there's a CBD oil that's legal all over the United States. It's the best quality you can get, and it's derived from hemp, which is, you know, related to marijuana, but it's not marijuana. And so it's, it's legal and it doesn't get you high, and, but it does, you know, have these extraordinary properties of uh, pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. It's from New Leaf Naturals, nuleafnaturals.com is the website. Um, CBD oil, non-intoxicating, so it's ideal if you're looking for the health benefits of cannabinoids without, you know, getting high. This does not get you high. It's non-toxic and has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. And the, th- this is the brand that, that Louise and I trust and use, New Leaf, N-U Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality concentrated CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and as I said, the only ingredient is hemp, so it's totally pure and simple and legal. So go to NewLeafNaturals.com, N-U-LeafNaturals.com, to save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nu for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get 30% off. And if you're the first person to tweet me, the newleafnaturals.com website, I'll send you a free bottle of Newleaf Natural CBD oil. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest-lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths That allowed the roman republic to thrive for so long and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise this is particularly true of the united states a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the roman republic presented by the second century bc author polybius this conscious borrowing from rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how rome's republic worked what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's republic. Much more serious threats to republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent confrontations between ordinary people in the streets." romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the republic in the 130s and 120s bc once mob violence infected roman politics however the institutions of the republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes within a generation of the first political assassination in rome politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war and two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a republic dies. Mortal Republic. I'm talking with Professor Edward J. Watts, professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. His new book, Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. He holds the... The Alciviades Vasiliades endowed chair. His new book, and I read this the weekend before last, and it just blew away my weekend. I could not put it down. Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. And uh, Dr. Watts, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us this hour. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Let's start at the beginning. You write about how i mean the, the focus of the book seems seems to be from my point of view anyway this period of time from roughly 100 bc to maybe a few years a.d when rome went from being more or less a functioning republic to becoming an empire and and the whole idea of republic was gone as octavian as augustus caesar rose can we start at the beginning? You said that the Roman Empire was roughly, and I'm doing this from memory, and it's been two weeks since I read your book, my apologies, but you said that the Roman Empire was about 500 years old, more or less, you know, around the time Christ was born. How did it start? And At one point, you referenced the Roman Constitution, and at another point, you referenced that Rome didn't have a Constitution. Did they have one? At what point did they acquire it? How did it function as a republic?
1: Where did the idea even come from? Yeah, I mean, this is a a great question, because when we think about Rome, what we tend to think about is the empire that starts with Augustus. And that, all told, lasts for about 1500 years. So it's one of the longest lasting states in the history of the world. But for 500 years before that, Rome is a republic. And then for about 300 years before the republic, Rome is a monarchy. And so what the republic actually starts as is a reaction against Roman monarchy, where you have a group of Basically, influential aristocrats who decide that they want a representative democracy of a sort to replace a monarchy that had become a kind of uncontrolled, absolute state.
2: Was this in part motivated by their looking at the experience of the Greeks?
1: I think they're looking at institutions in the region of, of sort of central Italy where they're located. And mm. what they saw was that a republic as they intended and as it was designed was a great way to sort of channel the voices of everybody into a few representatives but do it in such a way that the voices of some people are louder and matter more than the voices of other people when the republic is set up it's set up basically as something that is a representative democracy but it's a representative democracy in which certain people have a greater voice than others As you move across the history of this, that basic principle that everybody should have a voice, but the voice needs to be channeled through representatives, and certain people have more of a say in choosing those representatives, remains a feature of the Roman Republic from beginning to end.
2: If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority, and frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's one 888 1-888-Own gold 1-888-OWN-GOLD. 1-888-OWN-GOLD. There are people who make that argument about the United States today. Look at the Gillens and Page study from uh, I think it was Northwestern University or Columbia. If I forget where it was done, but you know, a couple three years ago or so, that just made headlines all over the world. That the top 10 percent of Americans, about 80 percent of the time, what they want legislatively is what actually gets passed in the United States. The bottom 90% of Americans, what they want legislatively is actually less likely than 50%, less likely than random chance to be enacted into law. So we have a, a republic here where we have this feeling that we are participating and that we're electing people, and yet there is a very definite power structure in place. Are there parallels here? Or was it, you know, hey, you know, we're going to make it more representative to diminish the probability of revolt or revolution, and yet we're not going to make it entirely representative because we want to maintain our wealth
1: and power? Yeah, I think that the path you see in the United States and the path you see in the Roman Republic are similar. When the United States, started as a republic, the people who could vote were property-holding white men, more or less. And, of course, this was a structure that originally was designed to support massive slavery in the South. And in the Roman Republic, you start out also with a very narrow group of people who actually get to decide what's happening. But in Rome, as in the United States, more people get involved, more people get a voice as time passes. Now, Rome never gets to the point where it's including, say, the votes of slaves or even the votes of women. But the people who set this up initially, I think, would have been shocked to see who could vote and what kinds of power those votes generated as the Republic gets to its later stages. And so I think in in both cases, what you have is a structure that's set up to be not particularly representative of everybody, you know, representative of certainly less than 50% of the people living in the society. But as time passes, republics tend to get more and more representative if they stay stable. And in both the United States and in Rome, that's the path that you see followed. One of the
2: things that I've found, I I actually uh, uh, included a, a whole chapter about this in a book I wrote years ago called What Would Jefferson Do? based on, you know, kind of the founding principles, is that animals are small d democratic that there was a study done in I think it was East Anglia University where they had a flock of red deer or herd or whatever they're called on the university grounds and they were trying to figure out how do they decide when to go to the water hole and when not to because that's a major decision you know the the smaller more fragile animals you know might dehydrate if they don't go frequently enough and everybody assumed that there was like this lead animal that led people to the water holes. Um, it turns out that when 51% of the deer turn their bodies and point their noses at the waterhole, then within a few minutes of that time, that 51st person out of 100 or that 51st deer, the whole group goes and gets a drink. It's like they're voting. The same thing with birds in flocks, that they're all kind of, and fish in schools, that they're all voting by tiny, tiny movements. And when over 50% of them agree with that vote, they move like democracy is in our genes after a thousand years or thousands of years. I mean, you know, from ancient Samaria, Gilgamesh, 7,000 years ago, right up to 300 BC, the evolution of the Roman Republic. Were there examples of democracy? And was there a sense among those early Romans that it actually is the natural state of mankind to be democratic? Or was there more of an agreement with Thomas Hobbes that we're all evil and life is nasty, brutish, and short without the prevailing force of, as Hobbes referred to it, the iron fist of church or state?
1: I think what you see with the Romans, I mean, there are democratic constitutions in antiquity, and they are aware of them. And there are certainly, by the fifth century BC, there are certainly democracies in Italy that Rome interacted with. But the principle, I think, that, that Romans felt very strongly about was the idea that the best way to make decisions actually wasn't democratically, because What tended to happen in those democracies is decision-making proceeded very quickly. You know, those were societies that were incredibly dynamic. And they could make changes very, very fast. And if the policy they decided on didn't work, they could reverse it very, very quickly as well. Um, But the disadvantage in a democracy is not everybody's invested in whatever policy you make. So it's only 50% plus one person that makes a decision. And that decision could actually be quite radical. And the reversal could be equally radical. And so, what the Romans decided and what the Romans preferred was a system that was based on generating consensus, where every decision was made on the basis or was made by people who represented all Romans on the basis of the collective consensus that they could build around a policy. And what Romans understood was that was not the most dynamic way to make decisions. It took a while to make any kind of decision in that kind of system, but those decisions tended to be binding, because people now were bought in, you know, if 70% of the population approves something, it's very hard to reverse it, and it's a lot harder than when 50% approve it.
2: You write Rome had avoided political violence. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman Republic politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Are there parallels to draw between that and the period in the United States in the late 1850s that led up to the Civil War? And if the racial violence that we're seeing, particularly the white supremacist violence against people of color in the United States that is now the number one domestic terrorist threat, has been apparently for some decades, were to grow, are there parallels there? Or was this something completely unique and different from what we're seeing?
1: I think the 1850s example is actually it's a wonderful one for safe parallel, because what you have in the 1850s is the breakdown of the United States Republic's ability to generate consensus and, and compromise. And so that political violence is something that happened because the system stopped working. And that, I think, is the real danger. In Rome, when that happened and when political violence became a way to solve these disputes that you couldn't resolve politically, the political system becomes marginalized, and it doesn't have the ability to protect people who are engaging in politics and ensure that they won't physically suffer because they take a political position. The racial violence right now, I think, is a little bit different because it hasn't yet risen to the level of trying to change policy by using violence. It's a very serious problem on the level of our society functioning. But it hasn't yet reached the stage where this political violence directed against didn't we sort
2: of see some of that though in the 60s and 70s when the anti-war, pro- you know, I was I was part of that generation and yes. and you know uh, I was spied on by the FBI, I was spied on by the the Michigan State Police, numerous of my allies and friends, you know, were spied on and many of them arrested. I was arrested more than once, and we were trying to change policy, and the outcome of that. Was arguably a much more repressive government, a much more powerful police state in the United States, or am I exaggerating that?
1: No, I think that there are certainly moments in the late '60s and early '70s where you see this. I mean, Kent State is the sort of yeah. perfect example of violence intruding into a political process in a way that it doesn't belong. Um, and in other cases, like the the Democratic Convention, um, and you know some of the other famous moments where political expression is being confronted violently. Do you see other political parallels with political violence, like, you know,
2: the uprising in Turkey against Erdogan and then his crackdown, the protests against Duterte in the Philippines, that crackdown, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Of course, that's not a republic, but, you know, his crucifying somebody for Easter. To what extent does political violence actually distort political processes in ways that we can learn from what happened in the Roman Republic?
1: I think it's incredibly dangerous. Um, I, I think that the the trajectory or the path that you can see um, that Rome shows us is that political violence doesn't actually start with people killing each other in the streets or even hitting each other in the streets over political matters it starts with a sort of violent rhetoric that becomes the way that politicians use threats and intimidation to get policies enacted and so I think that the, the the path from a republic that functions as it's supposed to, to violent crackdowns like what you see Erdogan engaging in in Turkey, uh, it starts with the kind of violent rhetoric that we actually are seeing with some regularity now coming out of some of the Trump campaign rallies, like the rally a few days ago where he, people were talking about shooting immigrants uh, and he didn't argue against it. He seemed to condone it. He sort of smiled and, and only here in the panhandle of florida exactly and once you start using that kind of rhetoric that rhetoric starts you on the path to someone actually taking action and in the roman republic the people who start using that rhetoric see almost not even a year later actual physical violence enter into a political space that it hadn't been for 300 years who was using that rhetoric rhetoric at the time
2: and when was this
1: This is in the 130s, and the way the rhetoric starts, you have a reformist politician who wants to get a relatively modest reform through, and it gets blocked because there's not a consensus supporting it. And what he does is he uses threatening supporters of his to come into the city and begin using the threat of violence to force policies through that otherwise wouldn't have been enacted. And this leads within less than a year to people using actual violence against him. Now, this is Tiberius Hmm. Gracchus, and Tiberius Gracchus never used violence himself, but he used violent rhetoric. And this alarmed people enough that the response was to use actual violence. Um, But once that comes into the political system, it's impossible for that system to generate actual, genuine consensus about the ideas. Uh, and the policies that one is trying to enact. Isn't this what
2: we saw with the brown shirts in Germany
1: in the 30s and the black shirts in Italy? Yeah. I mean, I think what you see in those situations is the space for actual debate and the space for actual compromise is eliminated because now people have put supporters into the street. And the other side of that is once one of those people, one of those black shirts or brown shirts or supporters of Tiberius Gracchus, dies in that fight you have a martyr you can't actually back down very easily if you've called those people into the streets and some of them given their lives for a policy and so compromise becomes really difficult in a situation where you've asked somebody to die for a position that you now are going to bargain away we haven't yet
2: really gotten into the death of Julius Caesar, the rise of the triumvirate, and then ultimately the rise of Octavian. If uh, please correct, correct my pronunciations. I my yeah. my my knowledge on this. I I took two years of Latin in high school, and I did in Latin a book report on Gibbons's book on, on the Roman Empire. <laughs> but, but to the best of my recollection, I didn't actually read the book. I you know I skimmed it. I or I had a Cliff Notes. I don't remember now. But I I learned so much from your book that I really should have known and so can you encapsulate summarize uh, you know fairly quickly for us how rome went from being you mentioned before you know for 200 years you had a, basically a kingdom then for about 300 years it became a republic and then more or less around the time of christ it ceased to be a republic and and how that happened and if there are lessons for us today in that
1: when we were talking in the last hour we talked about how the rise of violence in political systems like a republic short circuits, the basic way a republic is supposed to work. And what that means is, in terms of setting policy, the policies cannot be arrived at building towards compromise and consensus like a republic is designed to do. But eventually this seeps out so that it isn't just affecting policymaking, but it's affecting individual politicians. And so the politicians who are using violence or trying to push policies through, they now are not protected by the republic either. So there's sort of two fundamental aspects of what a republic should do. One is it builds policies that a lot of people support. But the other is, if you are on the wrong side of a political decision, you don't lose anything. You don't die. You don't lose your property. The
2: minority is protected, essentially.
1: Exactly. And so you know what's at stake when you participate politically. You know, if, if you win, you, you get a policy enacted. If you lose, you lose. And you lose face, and maybe you don't get reelected. But you don't die. Right. And as you move into the last century of the republic. The Republic becomes increasingly unable to protect the lives of the people who lose in political conflicts, which means, frankly, you can't afford to lose. And as you move into the career of Julius Caesar, you move into a moment where you have a figure who very much understands that that's what's at stake. Caesar was very willing to do things uh, that were unconventional or maybe unconstitutional, in a sense, to get policies enacted. But what Caesar also understood very deeply was that the republic by the 50s B.C. didn't function and couldn't ensure that any deal that he made politically would actually be binding. And so Caesar, as you come to the moment where Caesar decides to launch the civil war that that will basically lead to the demise of the republic what you see is caesar's negotiating with people in the senate to try to come up with terms whereby he can come back to rome and avoid conflict and avoid fighting a war and he can't trust the senate and his adversaries uh, to follow through on any deal that they make and so caesar ultimately decides to invade italy and start the civil war that ends the republic because he can't trust that the republic can make a deal that will be binding and in the end he can't trust that if he makes a deal with the republic he's not going to end up dead and that is ultimately the failing of the republic you know on a very basic level it can't ensure that people engaging in politics can do that without dying are there lessons for
2: today in that or are we nowhere near close to that sort of thing i mean that
1: that actually
2: seems like the precursor to the american civil war in some regards
1: Yeah. No, I I think we're not there yet. Um, But it's important, I think, to understand the path that one goes along to get to that point. Um, Because initially, when a republic is functioning and generating consensus and fostering compromise, no one even thinks that there's any risk that you could die for behaving politically. Um, Once you start injecting threats into this, you begin realizing that if, if you put a policy forward that somebody doesn't agree with, you might be threatened and you might get hurt. Um, Eventually, those threats move to violence and the violence moves to assassinations. And eventually, the system can't protect anyone who's behaving politically or can't guarantee that it will protect anyone who's behaving politically. And right now in the United States, we definitely are seeing threats. Trump has been doing this for about three years where he's threatening opponents. Occasionally, people get roughed up in his rallies. But we're not at assassination, at least the sort of sanctioned assassinations that you would see in the late stages of the Roman Republic.
2: So we have seen assassinations. We've seen people killed in synagogues. We've seen people killed in mosques. We've seen people killed in churches in the name of politics by people who are overtly Trump supporters. But none of them were politicians. They were killed because of their identity, not because of their political activity. That's a distinction?
1: that's a that's a key distinction yeah Yeah. Now the the level of political violence right now is higher than it should be but it hasn't gotten to the point where say congressmen are being killed because they don't vote a specific way right and that's Um, what happened toward the end of the uh,
2: in the collapse of the roman republic in the beginning of the roman empire
1: right and as you get into you know after caesar's assassination and you get into the civil wars with octavian octavian is particularly brutal uh, Octavian and Mark Antony um, and Lepidus, the, the three people who are leading the the, the attack on the last bastions of republicanism, uh, they are particularly brutal in eliminating the people who oppose them. Right. You know, hunting them down, killing them in the case of Cicero, nailing his, his head and his hands to the, the place where public speeches were given. Right. Um, it was violence for the sake of inciting terror.
2: I was invited to have a private audience with Pope John Paul II in 1999, as I recall. And Louise and I went over to Castle Gandolfo, and it was a whole all-day kind of ceremony thing. The heads of state from around the world were there. It was fascinating. And as I'm sitting you know, about 60 feet from the Pope, we're listening to this little concert, and with you know the head of the German, Bundestag, was sitting next to me and all this. And I'm looking at the palace guard, you know, the, the Swiss guard, and, and all the pomp mm-hmm. and ceremony. And the Pope was sitting in this giant golden throne, and behind him, just at the edge of the building, and then there was this maybe 12-foot tall statue of St. Peter holding a, a book in one hand and the keys to the kingdom of God in the other hand. And it struck me, the Roman Empire never went away. It just reincarnated as the Catholic Church. Is there any accuracy to that um, insight or whatever it was that I had in that moment?
1: I think that you're exactly right, the Roman Empire never went away. One of the projects I'm working on right now is this idea that the decline and fall of Rome is something that is persistent forever. You know, it it enters into how we think about politics now. And the Catholic Church is one of the groups or the entities that picked up the legacy of Rome, but you see this getting picked up whenever it's useful in all kinds of contexts. You know, everyone from Um, the Russians in the 16th century to the Germans in the 19th century from Charlemagne to the Byzantine emperors, all of them enjoy a claim on a Roman legacy and in some ways the United States does too. Um, You know, the modeling of our constitution on the Roman Republic isn't an accident. The men who did this were all classically trained, classically educated. You know, they knew their Polybius, they knew their Roman history Um, and of course our, our republic is being founded while gibbon is publishing his decline and fall of the roman empire so it's very much in everyone's mind
2: you you write uh this is from page 281 um or 280 you say the republic did not need to die a republic is not an organism it has no natural lifespan it lives or dies uh, solely on the basis of choices made by those in charge of its custody, and then on the next page after you go through Cicero's arrogance and Cato's senatorial obstruction <laughs> and, and Caesar's immense political talent and all those things, you say every time Cato misused a political procedure or Claudius, and forgive my mispronunciations here, intimidated a political opponent or a Roman citizen took in a bribe in exchange for his vote, they wounded the republic. And the wounds festered whenever ordinary Repo- Romans either supported or refused To condemn men who took such actions when citizens take the health and durability of their republic for granted their republic is at risk this was as true in 133 bc or 82 or 44 bc as it is in a.d 2018 you want to riff on that a little
1: yeah i i think that our obligation as citizens of a republic is to acknowledge that there's a lot of good that comes from this it's not the fairest political system it's intentionally not fair But on the other side of that, a republic that is dynamic, in which everyone is invested in its health, becomes more fair over time. And the decision that we have as citizens of a republic is, uh, do we actually value the slow and steady process of regeneration and growth that a republic engages in? And if so, what we need to do is argue and fight for that republic. And sometimes that's going to mean that there's a policy that 70% of the population approves that we don't. But if that is a decision the republic makes, then we move on and we try to fight that fight again within the context of that republic at a later point when people have changed their opinions. And if we can't do that, and if we do engage in threats, and we do engage in intimidation, and we do block the institutional apparatuses of this republic from doing what it's supposed to do, we damage it. And so our Constitution says Congress has an oversight responsibility. If that's blocked by a Republican president or a Democratic president, that's a problem. That damages the republic. And what we have not been doing recently is acknowledging that the republic needs to be protected. And if it's not protected, it won't be here forever something will replace it. One other thing that's important to understand is a republic is very good at controlling and keeping together a big space with a lot of different interests. Yeah, And we are a big space with a lot of different interests. Well, let's let's
2: dig into that as we continue talking with Edward J. Watts, the author of Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. What motivated you to write this book at this time, particularly given that, particularly toward the end of the book, indulged in a little bit of contemporary political
1: observation and comparison? So I've been teaching Roman history for the better part of 20 years. And in that time, um, what I've seen is the interest in the parts of Roman history that most appeal to my students has changed dramatically. So when I started teaching, it was in the the lead-up to the Iraq War and the discussions of Rome and the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire as a paradigm for the United States. And what I noticed, starting about in 2012, was that students became a lot more interested not in the empire, but in the republic. And the republic was always a a moment of great personalities, but not great relevance to our students. Um, But in the lead up to the 2016 election, and then especially after the election, students became very interested in how the Roman republic fell, what kinds of things happened that, that brought that process about. And what that might mean as a tool for us to think about our contemporary reality. And so the book actually was was designed to help my students and, you know, in a general population, think about what's going on around us with more tools than we might normally think we have available to us. Um, the 1930s are important to think about when we're considering what could happen now. But what's also important is looking at a republic that's old and lasts a long time and takes a long time to degenerate. And so I think Rome has some things that will be useful for us to keep in mind as we consider what's going on in the world around us. For example? Uh, So again, I think what's particularly important is to understand that a republic that is strong and has lasted a long time doesn't die in three or four years process of decline and degeneration takes a while. And so when we turn to what's going on in the U.S. and we say, well, this started in 2016 or it started in 2012, I think what we miss is a similar spurt of things happened in the 90s. Um, And the process of mistrust and the unwillingness to compromise and this idea that any kind of consensus building was a sellout or a failure to actually govern as you ought to, this was something that we saw, you know, throughout the Clinton years. But it's also, of course, something we saw in the 60s. And so the the question we have to ask is, what kind of process are we actually in? Is this a hundred-year-long process and we're somewhere in the middle of it? Is it a process that begins just now? Is it something that goes back to the 90s? But once we understand that we have to think with more historical paradigms than just what happened in the Weimar Republic and then say, the Spanish Republic in the 1930s, I think we can begin to realize that we don't exactly know what's going on in the United States. We don't exactly know what the ailment is that is afflicting our republic. And because of that, we have to pay more attention to it than we might otherwise. I think the biggest danger that we have, if we're using models from the 1930s, is that if the Trump presidency ends and the republic is still here, we might assume everything is fine. Uh, And I don't think everything is fine. Yeah. Well,
2: in fact, it will have been damaged and we're moving down that road toward the collapse of the republic. Is that the point you're making?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we need to be very vigilant, even if it looks like the threat has passed.
2: Hey, Louise and I have been using CBD for a couple of years now for basically pain relief and sleep but we had been using cbd that also had some pot in it i suppose because of you know it's legal here in oregon um but now there's a cbd oil that's legal all over the united states it's the best quality you can get and it's derived from hemp which is you know related to marijuana but it's not marijuana and so it's it's legal and it doesn't get you high and but it does you know have these extraordinary properties of uh, pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. It's from New Leaf Naturals. Nuleafnaturals.com is the website. Um, CBD oil non-intoxicating, so it's ideal if you're looking for the health benefits of cannabinoids without you know getting high. This does not get you high. It's non-toxic and has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. And the th- this is the brand that, that Louise and I trust and use: New Leaf, NU Leaf Naturals, New Leaf Naturals. The highest quality concentrated CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and as I said, the only ingredient is hemp, so it's totally pure and simple and legal. So go to NewLeafNaturals.com, N-U-LeafNaturals.com, to save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M, go to nu Premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place: NewLeafNaturals.com. Use the promo code Tom T H O M to get thirty percent off. And if you're the first person to tweet me the NewLeafNaturals.com website, I'll send you a free bottle of NewLeaf Natural CBD oil. Dr. Watts, we were just talking about how empires don't collapse overnight and Donald Trump all by himself in all probability isn't going to destroy the republic. And in fact, that you said, you know, a lot of the modern day chipping away at our small r Republican form of government in some way started in the 90s. My observation has been that in 1971, Lewis Powell proposed to the business elite and the very, very wealthy in this country that they should seize control of the instruments of education, of our educational system, of our religious institutions, of our government, essentially, the judiciary in particular, of our media. You know, the Powell memo just laid this out. It led to this explosion of right-wing think tanks in the 1980s, funded by billionaires. That brought us the Reagan presidency. And by the time Clinton came along, you had so many Republican politicians who were literally at that point in time, wholly owned subsidiaries of a handful of right-wing billionaires who we can name off the top of our heads and living in fear of them. And then this got amplified again when those same billionaires funded the Tea Party uh, during the Obama presidency. Uh, It seems to me like when the politicians went from being the servants of the people, and I, I would argue even Barry Goldwater and Everett Dirksen back when I was a kid felt that they were serving the people. They knew they had interests that they had to serve, but they were serving the people. When that shifts from serving the people or serving the republic to serving individual billionaires because they have the ability to destroy you with a primary challenger or to withhold funds, couldn't that be the pivot point, the, the turning point, when the American Republic really started to disintegrate? And arguably all of that follows on from the 1976 Buckley versus Vallejo Supreme Court decision, where literally the first time in the history of our republic the Supreme Court said that a rich person owning a politician is protected by the First Amendment under its free speech provisions? So I think that all of that is going on in
1: tandem with uh, an economic situation that is in some ways fueling that even more. I think that the element that is really, really damaging everything right now is the economic inequality that is persistent across the world. And this is actually something you see in Rome as well. The Roman elections were never particularly free of corruption. But the real problems start when a certain group of people start accumulating uh, extremely large concentrations of wealth. And this happens in Rome much like it did here, with a financial revolution that allows people with access to finance to grow their incomes and grow their wealth much faster than anybody else. And when that's combined with a political system in which money does distort the way that voting happens and the way policy is made, uh, as soon as more money gets poured onto a small group of people, Uh, this becomes a really serious problem. And in Rome, this was the problem that about a generation after this income gap opened up, uh, began to undermine the Republic. And I think when you Mm. see in the 130s the beginning of political violence, beneath that is a notion that the Republic is not functional. There's too much money concentrated in too few hands, and it's beginning to distort the ability of Rome to respond to the needs of everybody else. And so I think you've put your finger on the structural elements that amplify some of the economic problems, and both of those combine to make it very difficult for a republic to function as it should. To what extent
2: is empire uh, defined by military expansion, and to what extent did the military expansion of Rome, much like the United States now, our military budget is larger than the next six nations combined, right. to what extent is military expansion problematic for a republic?
1: So I think what's interesting in both Rome and the United States is there's a period of expansion that results in expansion of citizenship and expansion of franchise. So when the United States expanded across the continent, eventually what you saw is those areas into which the United States expanded became states, and the people in those areas got the right to vote and became citizens of the United States. And then it stopped, right? The uh, expansion into Puerto Rico did not lead to Puerto Rico becoming a state. And then the military presence after World War II and so many other places has not resulted in any kind of actual integration of those places in a way that has a meaningful effect on the policies the U.S. makes. And in Rome, what you see is something similar. The expansion in Italy did lead to integration, citizenship, and voting rights to most of the people in Italy. But at a certain point, that stopped.
2: (laughs) Remarkable. And that was the beginning of the end.
1: Uh, Well, that was the development of an imperial structure where not everybody was equal, and not everybody had an equal voice. Remarkable. Uh, And that was something that Augustus exploited. Remarkable.
2: It's an absolutely extraordinary book. I highly recommend it. A Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. Dr. Watts, thanks so much for dropping by today. Oh, thank you. This was great. It's great talking with you. It's absolutely a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate it, and I really love the book. Thank you so much for being with us today. Also, Democracy or a Republic. Small r. Hey, it's not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.